tuned to The Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Top Navy brass cannot explain exactly why a toxic foam used in fighting fires leaked out on the ground at its Red Hill Underground fuel tank farm. HPR Sabrina Bowden here to talk about that. Good morning, Sabrina. Good morning, Catherine. So the cleanup of about 1,100 gallons of toxic fire suppression foam was released Tuesday at Red Hill. Uh, the foam, known as aqueous film foaming foam, is considered a forever chemical that does not break down naturally, and it's it's if it's if it's not cleaned up, uh, it can pose a threat to the island's water supply. Well, I, I don't know what's scarier that the fact that this stuff discharged or that the Navy doesn't know exactly what caused it. Yeah. So what we kind of know already is that the leak was caused by an unknown pump valve activation. And there's an investigation into how the pump was activated. And what we do know is that the contents of just one entire tank did leak. And the Navy says an an annual contractor was on site working on infrared sensors at the time. Uh, But they're not speculating on what exactly happened. They want to do more tests and kind of understand more about what happened. You know, Um, the first thing that popped in my mind was, do they have those cameras working, you know, to, to to tell us more? So they don't have cameras in the area is what uh, they had mentioned at a press conference yesterday. Um, and it was actually spotted by a rover, which is somebody who's kind of just uh, monitoring the grounds and walking around. And they flagged the issue um, when they spotted the, the spill. And cleanup efforts uh, reportedly began shortly thereafter, Tuesday afternoon. Um, and this has caused the defueling of, um, so right now uh, the Navy is working on defueling Red Hill, um, and this has put a pause to that big defueling. Uh, and on Wednesday, Joint Task Force Red Hill Commander Rear Admiral John Wade says there's still foam in the facility's uh, pipelines, but that the foam system is offline. There is a triple F in the, what's called the pipelines, the headers, right? So uh, we do have a triple F protection in around the tanks, but we don't have the uh, tank filled with the, you know, 1,100 gallons right now. So as a mitigation, we've got the fire truck and also other mitigations with the firefighters there 24-7. And then I'm working with Admiral Barnett here to look at other risk mitigations to ensure that, uh, you know, we're, we're good. And right now all maintenance has stopped, right? Uh, because we we just want to understand what the risk is. And I want to be able to get to a point where we have adequate fire protection so that we can continue all the repairs, modifications, and the enhancements that are required per the state emergency order so that we can move forward and keep to our defueling timeline. Again, uh, this is a setback, but the, the bigger picture is here. We've got to remove this fuel from the tanks above our aquifer. That is the threat. And so um, that's that's what we're doing here. So this is a leak of a very concentrated toxic chemical. And there are a few ways the Navy has begun cleaning up Tuesday afternoon and into the night Wednesday. So on Wednesday, Navy Region Hawaii Commander Rear Admiral Stephen Barnett said a crew is excavating the dirt and concrete and asphalt from the area to prevent the foam from leaking down toward the island's main aquifer. Most recently, we have used uh, absorbent pads to collect the AFFF inside of uh, Added 6. We've sealed the storm drains in the vicinity of the Added to ensure no migration uh, comes from this off Navy property. We've removed 100% of the asphalt that was contaminated from the scene. We've broke up 100% of the concrete from a culvert that's outside of Added 6. And we've removed 50% of that uh, concrete, and that was as of this morning. 
Um, we removed approximately 250 cubic feet of soil, and we're storing those in 55-gallon drums. Currently, we have about 131 drums uh, that have been filled, and this number will continue to grow as we remove all the contaminated items. Of note, we have anywhere between 35 to 50 individuals working up at the uh, up at at six at any given time. And a part of the conversation yesterday with the Navy had to do with the notification of the State Department of Health and the Honolulu Board of Water Supply after the spill. Both departments have demanded more transparency from the Navy as well as a quicker response time for defueling. And at this time, the DOH and Navy both insist the water is safe, and your Admiral Barnett explains why. Communicating with the community is vital to us. We will continue to use all available methods uh, to keep you updated on this situation. We've been working and will continue to work closely with our regulatory partners, as Rear Admiral Wade said, uh, particularly during response of this incident. I'd like to repeat that given the size of this release and the distance from the nearest active water well, it is unlikely that the release will affect the drinking water or the aquifer. We're currently only drawing from one well, the Wayava well, which is actually about five miles uh, away uh, uh, from and from this site. The nearest well is the Red Hill shaft, and that's approximately one mile away. But as you recall, the Red Hill shaft has been disconnected for the past year and is not. It is not supplying drinking water to the Navy water distribution system. And, you know, uh, I know that the Board of Water Supply was demanding that the Mm -hmm. Navy start testing our water for these forever chemicals. Yes. And during a virtual update, Joint Base Pearl Harbor Hickam Commander Captain Mark Sahaney says the excavation plan was approved by the state regulators and they will over-excavate the site and the contaminated material will likely be shipped to the mainland. All right. Well, thank you so much, Sabrina. Thank you. We've been talking with HBR reporter Sabrina Bowden. Uh, to read her story, go to hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art. In the new exhibition, Moe Moe A, artist Noah Harders transforms found materials into fantastical works. On view now, honolulumuseum.org. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hello, I'm John Crowley, co-founder of CoolPetaluma.org. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about building social capital in neighborhoods block by block. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Support for HPR comes from Costco Air Conditioning and Refrigeration, serving Hawaii since 1961, featuring Daikin Air Conditioning Systems. Listing of contractors who install Daikin products at CostcoHawaii.com. tuned to the conversation here on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Now it's time for your backyard quiz. Onihoa, olehua, onihau, okaua, 
In today's Backyard Quiz, we're examining the double rainbow. Hawaii has one of the highest rates of rainbow sightings in not only the country, but the world. In fact, Honolulu is often referred to as the rainbow capital of the world. But how do these floating beams of color manifest? Well, light rays emitted by the sun are effectively parallel when they reach the earth, and raindrops are effectively all the same shape. So when sunlight shines into a sky full of raindrops, it's encountering millions of tiny, very similar spherical prisms and interacting with each in pretty much the same way. So each droplet produces a basically identical pattern of refracted, dispersed, reflected, and refracted light in a spectrum of colors. Now this process will create a single rainbow, but what about double rainbows? Well, that's our question for today. What's the process that produces a double rainbow? Think you know? Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689. The first one to get it right scores an HPR reusable tote bag. And stay with us as we take a pause from regular programming for a test of the emergency alert system right after this break. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareet Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits that help to strengthen the community and help underserved families, such as Hawaii Literacy. NareetHawaii.com. It is day four of the Mauna Loa eruption on Hawaii Island. Of the four fissures on the northwest slope of the mountain, Fissure 3 continues to be the main source of the lava flow, a flow that's uh, about three miles from crossing the Daniel K. Inouye Highway or Saddle Road. The U.S. Geological Survey now says that the lava has hit flatter ground and it's slowed considerably. Uh, it uh, expects the flow to move less like water and more sporadically, appearing still one moment and then moving the next, which is a good thing, which will give us more uh, planning time. The Hawaii County Civil Defense Agency says it has a traffic mitigation plan in place, which includes coordinating with the shipping and transportation industries should lava cross the highway. For many, this eruption echoes the 2018 Kilauea eruption that impacted the Big Island's Puna District and the Hawaii Volcanoes National Park. The conversations Russell Subiano sat down with Jessica Farrakane, the public affairs specialist for the National Park Service, to talk about this eruption. Does the Mauna Loa eruption, does it have an impact on the park? Yeah, the Mauna Loa eruption that we're having right now definitely has an impact on Hawaii Volcanoes National Park and, and some visitors. Because of the nature of the eruption, you know, very high elevation, very remote, a lot of SO2 coming out of the eruption. The park has closed 
almost all of Mauna Loa, at least the high elevation areas, the summit, the cabins, and Mauna Loa Road from Kipukapua'ulu area. People can still hike the Kipukapua'ulu Trail, but the road is closed from that area. It leads up to a, a 6,670-foot overlook, mm-hmm. and so that whole part of the road's closed. So that has an impact on some visitors, not that many visitors. Most people who are going up that road are experienced backcountry hikers who are trying to reach the summits. Summit is a goal for a lot of backcountry people. So it is impacting backcountry hikers, but the vast majority of visitors to the park are really wanting to see and drive around the sites of the Kilauea Summit, visit the visitor center, et cetera, and all of that part of the park is open. And just to clarify for those that might not understand the geography of Hawaii, the eruption on, on Mauna Loa, where it's coming out of its northeast rift zone, there's no direct link down to Hale Mau Mau or anything within the Hawaii Volcanoes National Park, right? Well, there is a connection in that they, you know, they are both being fed at some point by the hot spot, right? But they don't necessarily share plumbing per se. It's two separate eruptions happening. Two volcanoes, two eruptions happening in one park. As the crow flies, it's about an 18-mile difference. Okay. And then... On Mauna Loa, where the flows are coming out now, they began in the summit caldera, which is Mokuaveo Vale. Then they migrated out onto the northeast rift of Mauna Loa, and they're they're proceeding out at kind of at a, a northwest northerly direction as of today. The fissures at the real high elevations are within the National Park District, but certainly the fingers of those uh, fissure eruptions are outside of the National Park jurisdiction. I imagine there's been some anticipation that we'll see a bump in visitors because of the eruption. I know it's only been a few days, but has the Hawaii Volcanoes National Park, has it seen an increase in visitors? What kind of information is the National Park Service sharing with potential visitors? Yeah, so right now, what's important for visitors to know is that the park is open and the park is open 24 hours a day. Both volcanoes are erupting, Kilauea and Mauna Loa, Mm -hmm. and this hasn't happened since 1984. And I'm not sure as of right now if there's anywhere else on Earth where we have a simultaneous eruption happening from two neighboring volcanoes. There might be, we're looking into that, but I haven't found or pinpointed that information yet. So it's really a spectacular time to visit the park. That said, we are approaching the extremely busy holiday season. Whether or not there's an eruption, the period between Thanksgiving usually and mid-January is the busiest in the park. There's a little bit of a lull happening right now, but next week is when things really start to bump up for visitation to the island of Hawaii. You add two active volcanoes that people can see safely from the national park, and we are definitely expecting and preparing for an influx in visitation. The other component to that is if lava covers Saddle Road, that will be closed. And that will increase the number of not just visitors, but also residents coming into the park to see the eruptions and also driving through the park to navigate around the island. There's about a 10 mile stretch of Highway 11 that is National Park Service jurisdiction. And people have to drive that part of the road from, let's say they wanna go from Hilo to Kau or to the South Kona area, that comes right through the park. So we will definitely feel some impacts from this eruption for sure. I've talked to the USGS and I, I know that a lot of things are unpredictable when it comes to an eruption. Is there any concern that the Mauna Loa eruption might change and that 
the lava might impact the southwest rift zone, which could affect the Kahuku unit or Pu'uhonua Ohonao now? Certainly. You know, right when the eruption started, there was a little bit of a flare-up of lava out in the southwest rift, and that definitely caught our attention because that is upslope from our Kahuku unit. So that was definitely a concern. There's also species in that area. We have endangered Uwa'u who nest in that area. Their chicks are just starting to fledge and leave. So very ho much hoping that the, the flows don't go back into that direction. The other impact at the high elevation level with what the flows are doing now is that they could impact the Red Hill cabin and the Pu'u'ula'ula Ula area up at 10,000 feet. There's a very popular cabin among backcountry hikers, very beloved area, gorgeous backcountry, Mauna Loa hiking. And if the flows, you know, change direction a little bit or become more vigorous from uh, especially that number fissure four, they're calling it, then we might have some concerns with that area. And like you said before, Mauna Loa isn't the only volcano erupting on the Big Island, although it's getting all the spotlight right now. So what is the status of Hale Mau Mau within the park? So right now, Hale Mau Mau began to erupt again in September of last year. And that eruption, thankfully, is not threatening the community at all. It's confined entirely within Hale Mau Mau, the summit crater of Kilauea. And it's not threatening any park structure. It's a pretty large lava lake right now with some crusting over and also a more molten lava appearance. So providing some really good views after dark, people are still excited to see that. But definitely Mauna Loa is what's turning heads right now. I know there's been a lot of people <clears throat> driving up on Daniel K. Noe Highway to try and get a glimpse of Mauna Loa. I know that civil defense is trying to discourage people from stopping on the side of the highway. Is there an official safe spot to be able to view the eruption? The safest place really right now to view Mauna Loa is from Hawaii Volcanoes National Park. You can see the eruption from many areas along the summit of Kilauea and then also see that simultaneous eruption happening. That said, there is spectacular viewing outside the park. I myself went there in the wee hours this morning before coming into work, and it was pretty amazing. It was so early that not a lot of people like to wake up at that hour, so it wasn't crowded. You can still go up and view if you go to the Gilbert Kahele County Park. That's open 24 hours a day, and the bathrooms were wonderfully clean, and there was very few cars in the parking lot. We did notice some vehicles up on Monica Access Road, but very few people parking on the side of the road. Again, that was a really early morning hour. I think we were up there at 4 a.m. I've heard other reports that it's definitely much more chaotic after dinner time. I think there was an accident there last night. I think everybody is very much enthralled with what's happening. It's very easy to get distracted while you're driving. So a really key message for visitors who are coming or anybody who even lives here is, really pay attention on the roads. There are a lot of distracted drivers who, you know, are looking one way and then the other with these volcanic eruptions that are happening right now. So really important to drive safely and be keenly aware of what's happening on the road around you. There's a lot of other drivers too who are not paying attention. And the other thing is please keep an eye on air quality. This is exciting. Lava is wonderful to see. It's culturally enriching, et cetera. But it is also producing a lot of SO2. I mean, hundreds of thousands of tons of SO2. I think the latest measurement was 250,000 tons a day. 
So the air quality has the potential to go really bad in some areas. So keep your eye on those air quality monitors. On the park website, right from our homepage, we have a new eruption viewing and safety page that people can drop right into and see what the air quality is before you come. Especially important if you have any kind of respiratory issue, infant, pregnant women, that kind of thing. For somebody that is there on the Big Island, has lived in Hawaii all your life, how exciting is this eruption? It's so exciting that I don't even care about sleep or eating right now. I am completely enthralled with this dual eruption of Kilauea and Mauna Loa and the significance of the power of Pele. I mean, this is an amazing, it's, it's not just the spectacle of geology and history. It is Pele and Hawaiian culture and all the things that give your life chicken skin, you know, <laughs> from inside out. So it is one of the most exciting things in my whole life. Thank you so much for your time, Jessica. Thanks, Russell. And that was National Park Service's uh, Jessica Farrakane talking about the Mauna Loa eruption with HPR's Russell Subiano. The USGS is also warning communities on the south side of Hawaii Island that winds have shifted and are now coming out of the north, which could send sulfur dioxide and Pele's hair into the southern part of the island. So stay safe and heed those advisories. The eight scientists and technicians who work at the Mauna Loa Observatory collecting climate data are grateful to be out of harm's way on the lava flow, but they're anxious to return to the facility, though no one knows when it will be safe to do so. We talked to Aidan Colton this morning, who was born and raised on the Big Island. Uh, he's a technician and has worked there since 2004 and says just about all of the full and part-time staff at the facility are from Hawaii and so are deeply connected to the Mauna. He explains that the observatory, run by NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, collects climate baseline data, which has been operating nonstop since it opened in the 50s. But that work was paused after their power source was cut by the lava flow. Here's Colton explaining the situation. Ever since we had power lines put in in 65, we haven't had to man it overnight. So a lot of our uh, instrumentation is continuously monitoring 24-7. And we go up during the day and we perform our calibrations and do all of our daily checks and make sure everything's running smoothly. But we do no longer have to be up there in the evening time. So luckily, nobody was there on site and civil defense didn't close the road before we were allowed to get up there on Monday morning, which turned out to be a really good thing. And so what about the research? Because, you know, this has been going on continuously, what, since the 50s, right? Yes, it has. So unfortunately, you know, the speed at which Madame Pele took out our access road and power was, was just unexpected. And we rely on Helco Power. So once the power lines got taken out, all of our instrumentation within a couple hours, because most of it is on UPS battery power, to handle blackouts and brownouts, you know, that might last a few seconds to, you know, maybe an hour. Everything basically went dark up there. Wow. But I mean, it's at least still intact, right? And it's just the power source has been cut. Yes, exactly. So, you know, we, we feel like we dodged a bullet. We can wait it out and we can repair the road and we can repair the power lines. 
but the structures itself and all of our instruments, we believe, are, are intact and unharmed, and we are just awaiting the time when we can go back and check it out and, and get everything back online. And so for the listeners out there who don't know what you do up there, explain why the data collection is so important. Sure. You know, the data collection at Mauna Observatory has a global reach. So we are looking at many different things in the atmosphere that can cause a, a forcing in our climate. So either a warming or a cooling of our atmosphere. And we look at mainly solar radiation, aerosols, atmospheric trace gases, including our greenhouse gases, like carbon dioxide and methane. We also look at ozone, which is the, the layer that protects us from the sun's ultraviolet rays. And then also the ozone depleting substances that destroy the ozone, including CFCs and their replacement chemicals. Um, and then we also look at meteorological data, so temperature, pressure, humidity, wind speed, and direction. We actually have over about 250 different things that we're monitoring, not all continuously, but basically on a weekly basis. And all of that data allows us to better understand what's happening in our atmosphere. So everybody's, I guess, keeping their fingers crossed that, you know, you folks can uh, get up there soon and continue your research. But I don't know, you know, with the threat to the Daniel K. Inouye Highway, you know, Saddle Road, how does that complicate things for you? Yeah, you know, we're kind of listening to civil defense and watching the lava flow just like everybody else. You know, our, our way of getting up to the facility has always been via our access road. So we're, <laughs> we might have to pursue other options here in the future, especially if it does take out Stock Battle Road. Would you be able to drop in by helicopter just to check on your equipment? We're pursuing all options to see how we might be able to get back to the site. Uh, helicopter is definitely an option. The other thing is because we're located you know, at 11,135 feet above sea level, it's not always the easiest location for a helicopter to fly and land and take off. But we do have a helicopter pad location on site for a situation like this where we might need to be evacuated. And are there any projects, research projects underway that might be affected because you can't collect the data? Yes. You know, unfortunately, this will create a, a gap in our data set. And gaps, you know, are never a good thing. However, you know, Monolo Observatory is run by NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. And we have three other background sites around the world that are also doing the same type of research. And we also have over 100 different locations where we're taking weekly samples. So while, unfortunately, we will have a gap in the Mauna Loa data set, we'll be able to fill it in with our data coming off of all of our other sites around the world. And because we've got the two volcanoes going off at the same time, which is kind of unusual, how does that work with the, the data that we're losing at this point, not being able to, to collect as it's happening? Yeah, well, we, that's a really good question, and I get that a lot at Mauna Loa. They assume that because we're on a volcano, we actually are trying to collect information about the volcano. But what we're actually doing is we're trying to get baseline background levels that are indicative of what's basically in the Northern Hemisphere. So while the volcanic activity will affect some of our, our data sets, our algorithms actually don't want that. So what we do is we look for that data and we kind of pull it out of our data set because what we're looking for is extremely clean baseline monitoring. So what we want to see on our instrument, for, for instance, for 
carbon dioxide is a flat line. And any volcanic intrusion will show a peak on our graph. I see. So volcanic activity is not new. We built the observatory, you know, on the side of an active volcano. And Kilauea has been erupting basically since 1984. So we're used to dealing with volcanic plumes and volcanic outgassing. And are the earthquakes affecting your facility at all? No, they, they haven't been in the past, you know, over the past few months. It's really hard to feel them up there. So I know it's deeper under Mauna Loa, but we haven't really felt them. And so, gosh, I don't know where you live, but are you within sight? I mean, do you see, you know, what's going with the volcano, you know, before you go to bed at night? Yeah, I do. I actually luckily live on the Mauna Kea side of the road. So down in Hilo, and I can see the plume, you know, and I've also spent some time down at Little Clowney Park in the morning, and, you know, you can you can just have a beautiful view of the entire skyline, and you see Mauna Loa, I mean, just letting off this massive amount of, of lava lighting up the sky. I mean, that must just be so incredible, you know, watching you know, Mother Earth <laughs> do her thing. It's just, it's just so amazing, is it? Yeah, it is. You know, I was born and raised on the island, so we all knew that this was going to happen. You know, they've talked about it, and Mauna Loa is overdue. The last eruption in 84 also caused a disturbance to our operations at the facility, but it's also just hard to believe that it really is happening. That was Aiden Colton with NOAA's Mauna Loa Observatory. Stay tuned to HPR throughout the day for updates on the Mauna Loa eruption as they become available. And don't forget, it's the first of the month, and Civil Defense will be conducting siren tests today. So uh, they want people to know it is not related to the eruption. Support for HPR comes from SEEKS, the School for Examining Essential Questions of Sustainability, a public charter middle school celebrating 10 years of serving Honolulu families. Learn more at seeqs.org. With the hustle and bustle that the holiday season can bring, may we take time to pause, reflect, and give thanks. If HPR is an essential service you're thankful for, support your future listening with a monthly financial gift. With our community pitching in, $10 a month makes a difference. Support HPR as a new member or with an additional gift. Give today at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company since 2005, featuring a locally-based customer care team committed to problem-solving and personal service for each client. Learn more at mobi.com. Reality Check Today looks at efforts to get more money for housing for Native Hawaiians. Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Nick Ruby joins us live from the nation's capital, where he's been covering the lame duck session. Good morning, or good afternoon, Nick. <laughs> Hi, good morning, Catherine. Thanks for having me on today. Yeah, so tell us what's going on there with housing. 
Yeah, so this story today uh, on Civil Beat is really about the art of making a deal in this particular Congress. And so it focuses on the many obstacles that Hawaii Senator Brian Schatz has faced in his efforts to reauthorize the Native American Housing Assistance and Self-Determination Act. Um, generally, it's referred to as NAHASDA, and so I'll be using that acronym going forward. Uh, so now NAHASDA provides hundreds of millions of dollars each year to tribal governments, uh, and, and this includes the Department of Hawaiian Homelands, and, and that's to support affordable housing and infrastructure. And now Schatz has introduced legislation to update NAHASDA, which for Hawaiian beneficiaries uh, of DHHL means the prospect of millions of more dollars each year for housing. Um, and, and this includes uh, also a change to a HUD loan program that if this bill passes would essentially allow beneficiaries to buy homes not solely just on Hawaiian homestead land, uh, but anywhere in the state that they choose. Wow. Uh, now proponents of that, yeah, and proponents of this legislation say that that's actually a real game changer uh, for them, and it could open up the real estate market to a whole new group of potential home buyers who've been waiting for years on uh, on the DHHL wait list for homestead lands to become available. Now, since this is Congress, here's the rub. Um, you know, although this bill does have bipartisan support. It is being held up by two senators from North Carolina uh, who say that they're not going to let Nahasda or, uh, or a number of other Indian country bills pass through the Senate unless a tribe in their state, the Lumbee tribe, uh, are federally recognized. And while the Lumbee tribe has a ton of support for federal recognition, including from Brian Schott, who is the chairman of the Indian Affairs Committee, um, and uh, there are other Native American tribes who oppose them getting federal recognition and these other uh, tribes have their own political juice and basically have been pressuring senators in the background to put up their own blockade to essentially stop this bill from moving forward. Wow. So there's all this horse trading going on. Yeah, you could say that. I mean, there, there's, there's a lot happening in the background and, and there's a lot that needs to happen quickly uh, because as we know, the Congress is coming to a close. Um, at the end of the year, and uh, and Republicans are retaking control of the House, which of course throws everything up in the air in terms of whether or not uh, Democrats who retain control in the Senate, uh, whether they can work together to get some bills uh, pushed forward. Now, um, if Schatz is successful, uh, which many hope that he is, it would be a pretty impressive piece of statesmanship. Um, now, we, we also need to remember, if he's not, uh, then Native Hawaiians in DHA, DHHL in particular will most likely still be getting federal funds uh, through this NAHASDA program, but they're going to be living in this world of uncertainty. And the reason for that is uh, NAHASDA, generally when it gets reauthorized, it's for 10 years at a time. And when, it, when that happens, the federal allocation of money is sort of uh, set at that time. But now, because NAHASDA has expired, uh, a lot of tribes and DHHL are looking to Congress every year, waiting for them to allocate money uh, to, to these programs. Well, what happened to DHHL a few years ago is they got into some trouble because they weren't actually spending this money when it was coming in. And so Congress said, you know what, we're going to pull the plug. And there was a year that uh, DHHL didn't get this uh, money for Native Hawaiian housing, which previously had been at a level of about $10 million a year, and they zeroed it out. After that, uh, Congress started giving them money 
at, at a rate of about $2 million a year um, until recently when shots upped that amount to $20 million a year. Now, what DHHL officials are hoping for is that this $20 million figure, if Nahazda is reauthorized, will sort of be the baseline moving forward. And, you know, $20 million a year, that's a, that, that's a lot of money that you could put toward Native Hawaiian housing, particularly for low-income Native Hawaiian. Yeah, and, uh, you know, it would be a game changer if uh, Hawaiians could uh, use that money to, to buy uh, houses uh, not on DHHL land. But thank you so much, Nick. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. That was reporter Nick Gruby with today's Reality Check. To read the full story, visit civilbeat.org. time for your backyard quiz answer. Uh, today we asked you how a double rainbow is made. To make a rainbow, sunlight shines through a sky of raindrops, which acts as, a sphere, as spherical sp- uh, prisms that reflect the light into a spectrum of colors. The process for double rainbows is slightly more complicated. Although the same basic process is the same, there's one key difference. When you're looking at a double rainbow, you're actually looking at a mirror image of a single rainbow rather than two separate manifestations. And how this happens is that the ray of sunlight that initially hits a raindrop bounces twice off the back uh, interior surface of said raindrop before re-emerging in the air. The second reflection inverts the order of the colors and creates a second identical but opposite rainbow. And our winner today, uh, Chuck Mitsui, says he often talks about this with his kids. That's pretty neat. But uh, that's our quiz today. If you have an idea for one, write to talk back at hawaiipublicradio.org. students are putting weekend fun aside and are getting down to business this Saturday at the Hawaii State Capitol Building. They're hosting the Climate Future Forum ahead of the 2023 legislative session to discuss climate policy and goals with lawmakers. The event is in person and open to the public with those aged 16 to 24 encouraged to attend. The conversation Savannah Harriman Pote spoke with Iolani sophomores Audrey Lynn and uh, Chisato Tarui, who are organizing the event. Uh, she also spoke with State Representative Amy Peruso. Peruso starts off recalling her own start in climate activism as a college student in California. I participated in CalPERG and, you know, went door to door trying to convince community members that we should do more to address the issues of pollution in in Southern California, where I was going to school. And I think that um, is really in those conversations and over the decades, different issues, specific issues have emerged, but they're all interconnected. And I think this particular moment is really critical because we haven't, you know, just a limited window Mm-hmm. And, and I think that uh, supporting young people as they take the lead in this effort is really important. As someone who started as a young a student activist yourself, 
What has stayed the same about climate action and concerns among young people, and what has really changed? Hmm. I think one common element has been the strength of corporate power and the need to really organize citizens to create an effective bulwark against that and, and to overcome that kind of power. And I think that there's a certain quality of youth voice that has also remained somewhat consistent. So I think there's this element of um, idealism that rings a certain note that is only coming from the younger generation. And, and it's that note that we really need to listen for and kind of um, align ourselves with. And for the two of you, and we'll start with well, Audrey, we'll work our way back this way. What do you think distinguishes climate action or climate initiatives that are led by young people? I think really what makes these movements so significant and impactful is that we are the future. And we're going to have to live with these decisions that older generations have been making um, for the past few decades. And what we've realized with, you know, scientific evidence is that we really need to start now. I completely agree with what Audrey said about, you know, youth having the sense of urgency that I think makes us really unique. And I think when it comes to climate change, you know, you know, as youth, we can't really um, vote right now. Um, we're still like 16 years old, but we, we still very much have a voice. And I think, you know, any solution to climate change has to be an intergenerational solution. And, you know, it has to be uh, people of all ages, um, especially youth, gathering their attention towards this issue that will impact all of us. Amy, when you hear this same idealism that you had presented today, are you motivated by that? Or is some part of you a little bit frustrated where you're saying, oh, (laughs) these folks are in the same position that I was Mm. so many years ago, and we're still tackling and having some of the same conversations? I I think there are some parallels, but I think it's a different moment. As I was growing up, it was a movement kind of dominated by privileged white people, I would say. And I would say that it's less characterized by that now. It's just a a different tone and there's just an insistence on justice Mm. that we didn't hear that in quite the same way in 1980s and 1990s, you know, as a former social studies teacher, like I've, I've worked with young people my whole life, like that has been my life. So, the moment of COVID was a break in what I saw working with young people in in politics. Do you two feel like that's an accurate characterization of youth-oriented or youth-motivated climate action? And also, was the pandemic a moment of awakening or was something else the call to action for you? Definitely the pandemic, like um, Representative Perusa mentioned, was a moment of realization for me. I think it also was, again, just tying back to the sense of urgency that we felt also in the wake of these social justice movements and in moments where the youth have felt powerless, reaching out to outlets where we can make a difference, which is what we're trying to advocate for in our event on Saturday, is something that's really important to us. Did you feel powerless during the pandemic? I think during the, uh, the pandemic, we all felt a bit powerless just in terms of when something so invisible, such as a disease like COVID-19, you know, just forces you to 
change your entire lifestyle and change the way that you communicate with people. Do you think of climate change as the same kind of invisible force? Climate change, we, we think of as something invisible, but there are so many physical effects of it that we can see just in our everyday lives. And that is only going to be worsened unless we start doing something about it right now. I really resonated with what Amy said about how, you know, the climate um, justice movement has changed a lot. I think right now, the way social justice kind of interconnects with the climate justice movement, it's it's a lot more prominent today. And I think that's actually shown in the conference that we're going to have on December 3rd, because one of the workshops is entirely centered around social justice and climate justice, because privilege, you know, intersectionality, that all ties into how you're going to be affected by the climate. And can you talk a little bit more about the workshops that will be available for folks on Saturday Mm -hmm. and your involvement in them? Right. So I'm involved in two of the workshops. One is Carbon and the Economy, and this is going to be centered around the economic aspects of climate change. And we very much want to focus on carbon pricing, for example, which economists have long championed this as one of the most effective ways to combat climate change because, you know, at the core of climate change is the overproduction of of emissions, and that's due to negative production externalities, which is a market failure. And, you know, there's there's a lot of, you know, fancy economic stuff around it, which is, you know, really fascinating. And I think um, to have other youth, you know, learn more about this and how much, you know, economic solutions are impactful when it comes to what it seems like just an environmental problem that is climate change, you know, how multifaceted it is, I think that would be super cool to see. I'm really inspired by your love for economics because I think (laughs) as someone who reports on climate, it's very difficult sometimes to keep people's focus when you're talking about something intangible. Mm -hmm. When you started to get into vocabulary like carbon pricing, carbon caps, tariffs, I feel myself starting to retreat. (laughs) How do you make and how are you going to try to make these concepts accessible on Saturday? Well, I think one thing that we definitely want to do is to make sure that we're defining all the terms that we're using and to make sure that the language that we're using is accessible. And I think, you know, we're going to have legislators there in the workshops, and that may be intimidating for a lot of young people. Um, I know I would be intimidated by that. But I think, you know, I'm also a young person, and I'm going to be, um, you know, presenting some of the topics. I think having a young person um, teach something to another person, um, a person of youth, I think that is in itself is going to be an incredibly accessible way to reach out to them. And Audrey, what are you involved in on Saturday? What are you looking forward to? I really hope that we can establish something with the youth attending the workshop in saying that it It's their voice that really matters, and it's not that difficult, although it looks difficult. It's not that difficult to connect with your legislators and um, truly make a difference. For me, I was super intimidated at my first meeting with a representative, and I walked in, I walked in with a smile, and, you know, I was greeted with a person. And I think that made me realize that these people who are, you know, our voices in the government, they're people too, and... The only thing that we need to do to um, make our voices heard is just to talk to them and submit testimony, et cetera. And I think that's what I hope to teach the youth um, on Saturday. 
That was uh, student organizers Audrey Lin and Chisato Tarui and Hawaii Representative Amy Peruso talking with HPR Savannah Harriman Pote. Lin and Tarui are part of the team leading the Climate Future Forum, which will bring students, lawmakers, and educators together on climate action. It'll be held at the Hawaii State Capitol this Saturday. We'll have more on the conversation page of our website, hawaiipublicradio.org, later today. That is it for today. Up tomorrow, we plan to take a look at our problem with fentanyl. Give us some feedback. Uh, call our Talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can also find the Conversation podcast on Apple and Spotify. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.